We're at a study of Peter's second letter. We are at the end of chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, I'd like to pick it up in verse 16 for context as we are uh, then breaking in on all the edifying things that uh, Peter has just told us about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, at the end of this chapter, he weighs into some controversy and uh, begins a transition now, lest the church be led astray by the error of the wicked, as he puts it. So we pick up now in verse 16, uh, either answering some charges that have been made against him or uh, turning the tables and uh, accusing those false teachers he's about to contend with of inventing the things that they are teaching. Here we read in verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The portion for today knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Holy Spirit of God, we pray once again that even as you had inspired this word for our instruction and edification to teach us and mold us to reshape our lives and hearts and minds into the image of Christ. So we pray that you would enlighten it and inscribe it upon every heart. We pray that your great work would find its fulfillment in every soul here. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. It was January 26th of 2020 that Kobe Bryant and several others died in a tragic helicopter crash in California. Some of you will also remember that on July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. was killed when the aircraft he was piloting crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. It was determined that in both of these accidents, the cause was, quote, spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation is something that happens whenever, uh, or not whenever, but uh, happens occasionally when a, when a pilot flies into fog or other conditions, blocking any visual reference points, and then something happens where he loses his orientation, his sense of direction. Uh, pilots, of course, can usually look to the horizon or the ground to help them see where they're going, what up and down and left and right really are. But sometimes when pilots can't see the horizon or the ground, they must rely fully on the aircraft's instruments, even more than they trust their own senses. 
those instruments are essential to keep you straight and level and upright when your senses are telling you something entirely different. And many seasoned pilots say that the hardest thing that they had to learn was unwavering confidence in those instruments, especially when their feelings were telling them something else. But they knew that their lives depended on trusting those instruments. Well, in a similar way, we are called to trust in God's Word as we navigate through this life, even and especially when our feelings would be leading us in a different and dangerous direction. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, He gives us a Word, a Word that is solid and sure, that teaches us the most amazing and important truths ever conceived. In fact, the greatest things that have ever occupied the mind of man. God's Word unites our hearts and lives with His, our purposes with His, our loves with His, our hopes and our dreams with His. We are taught by His Word to be Christ's brethren, His servants, His soldiers, His subjects, the children of His Father in heaven. That Word is given to transform us from the inside out, to shape our loves and hatreds, our attitudes, our deepest convictions, and so to change our lives, root and branch. Our entire lives are redefined, redirected, renewed, indeed recreated by the word that he has given. And so, as Peter put it, we have received a precious faith, as we've learned. We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises so that we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world through lust. That He's given us everything for life and godliness. And therefore, Peter has urged us for many reasons to make progress, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be fruitful and productive, thoughtful and visionary, confident and unshakable, having made our calling and election sure, as he said. So Peter was about to depart from this life, as the Lord had made clear to him, And he wanted to leave the churches of Asia on a solid foundation. And what is that? God's word, as it has been fulfilled in Jesus, as confirmed by the apostles' own eyewitness testimony. By this, he would make sure that the church would not be led astray. We didn't follow cleverly devised fables, he said. Now, in the previous generation, you might expect uh, somebody to say that they didn't believe in Christianity because science has disproven God. Um, Although recently, there's been several high-profile cases of people that have given up atheism because of science. But nowadays, the point is, you're not likely to hear that anymore. Nowadays, what you would likely to to hear is that the Bible is myth. The very word that Peter uses here when he says that we did not follow cleverly devised fables, it's just the word mythos or myths, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so we have the words of the prophets confirmed. Many people are led astray by myths, he knows. Myths that frankly aren't even so cunningly devised. I, 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 I never cease to wonder about this and to ponder in my heart uh, 
the implication, I mean, for, for example, the tragic fact that there are 1.9 billion people in the world today that uh, believe that these 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which were inspired by God, they admit, written by some 40-odd authors over the course of 1,500 years, distributed throughout three continents, translated into many languages. But they say that all, all those books everywhere, old and new, have been corrupted in exactly the same way. However, an angel in a cave has given one man the real scoop. And as a result, there will soon be millions of people in Mecca circling around a meteorite. Frankly, it does not sound very cunningly devised to me. And it weighs on me. Well over a billion people deny these prophetic scriptures and the eyewitness testimony of the apostles on no rational or historical basis except the word of one man in a cave who says he's talking to an angel. Peter, Peter knows these things have been said right from the beginning. Angelic revelations, people that were in fact following and teaching cleverly devised fables. And I don't say this in any mocking way. Simply to say the fact that Somebody says, an angel told me, and the next thing you know, thousands, if not millions of people are following. Peter wants to deliver the church from this dangerous situation as people are likely to fall for such a thing. In the passage before us, Peter wants us to know three things about the prophetic scriptures. Number one, it's not just their interpretation. Number two, on the other hand, Men spoke from God. And number three, they did so as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That'll be our three points for today, not just their interpretation, but holy men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, just right from the text, and I'll see if I can't open it up and apply it to you. First, it's not just their interpretation. I think there's also something very contemporary about this point, because you, uh, you, you know, you t- again, you talk to people today, and as soon as you say something that sounds the, you know, the least bit uh, dogmatic, um, you know, you might say the, the Bible says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the common reply today is, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, I don't know. Perhaps the prophets themselves faced this difficulty. Perhaps the apostles had to give their own uh, rejoinder to that. It's just your interpretation seems to be a common excuse. Peter, you notice with some emphasis here, wants to be very clear that this is in no wise the case. Verse 20, knowing this first, um, if it's first, why is it all the way down at the bottom here? Well, as he's talking about the scriptures, he wants people first to understand that what they have been told is wrong. Okay, he's going to clear the way before he tells the truth. Know this first, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Well, what does that mean, you say? Interpret that for me. Well, it says I can. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I should point out that there are two very different interpretations of that statement, and this has come down to us in the last 500 years as a furious debate. The Roman Catholic Church takes this to mean that 
no prophecy of Scripture is for private interpretation. Uh, the church's magisterium, and they alone can interpret the Bible in an authoritative way. And it's surprising how much this verse comes up when they're trying to prove their case as though it was clear and rested on that. The verse does not say that no prophecy of Scripture is for private interpretation. It says that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. That is, it did not arise out of impressions or ideas or feelings. And the rest of the sentence makes the meaning perfectly clear. We, finish, we continue with the sentence in verse 21, the next phrase. For prophecy never came by the will of man. This is a statement of the origin of prophecy, you see. We shouldn't conclude that we're not to do any interpretation, but leave that for the experts. We're to conclude that prophecy didn't come of or from or by or through anyone's interpretation. Those Bereans, you remember, commended because they received the word with all readiness, searching the scriptures to find out if those things were so. Well, the point is, the point is this, prophets don't create the message in their own heads. The prophets get it from God. There is a very human role in Scripture. I'll, I'll, I'll be, with, be with, back with that in a minute. But know from the beginning, he says, that, that, that it didn't come or originate from the mind, the will, the opinions of man. You can get this, of course, just reading them. The prophets didn't say, this is my opinion. I feel that. Thousands of times they say, Thus saith the Lord. Not only did the prophets not come up with the message themselves, they even had to, to read it and struggle to figure out what it meant. P Peter explained this in his letter to the churches of Asia, the first letter to the churches of Asia, he wrote in his first letter, you know, concerning the salvation, even the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them testified when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the grace that was to come to you. The point is that even those prophets longed to know what the fulfillment of their own words might be. Okay, somebody might object. Okay, that's talking about the Old Testament prophets. What about the New Testament? Well, I can answer this in many ways. For example, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he said to them, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as in truth, the word of God. In fact, it's very interesting. At the, at the end of this uh, letter to first, to, of Second Peter, rather, if you just look at the end in chapter 3, you'll see what the apostles themselves thought about their own writings. Just at the end of this little letter, chapter 3, picking up at the middle of verse 15, um, the long, long suffering of our Lord is salvation, middle of 15 here, as also our beloved brother Paul, 
according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Here's the important phrase. As they do the rest of the Scriptures. We are simply not to read the Bible and conclude that these authors were giving their opinions, their feelings, their interpretation of some vague impression, or that they were so culturally conditioned that somehow they could not help but mix God's Word with their own prejudices or those of their society. Oh no, this wasn't their opinion. This was not their own interpretation. God would have us give heed to his writings as inspired. Clear all the objections away from your mind. Know this first, he says. It's not, it's not for men. Everything that you're going to believe, everything that you're going to hope for, the very way of life that God is going to reveal to you, the answer to every genuinely important question is going to be found in a book. And you need to know how to receive it. The Bible presents no mere philosophical or moral message, but a gripping account of a redemption promised, accomplished, applied, even revealed by God Himself. And you will know no Christ and no salvation except that which is given to you in this Word. And that's not just their interpretation. Rather, positively, we are to believe, point two, that men, as I have here, holy men, spoke from God. Verse 21, for prophecy never came about by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke. So, as usual, this is the constant drumbeat of the Bible. We are reminded in every case that the Bible is a truly human word. The Bible constantly affirms this. I gave you many illustrations last time uh, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. Or just a few weeks ago, we read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, where Isaiah's words are called what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. It always does this, affirming the human side of things, even while it's declaring that ultimately it's God's word. And why is that so important? Well, just, just read it. The Bible comes about in such a variety of ways. The fullness of the humanities is on every page. I mean, some parts of Scripture, we admit, did come into being by a kind of divine dictation. It's true. Um, from time to time, we read, I heard the voice of the Lord say, or write this. This is what the Lord says. So sometimes it's true that the prophets were just God's secretaries taking dictation, if you like. But you'll know that most of the Scripture is not like that, that God actually has sovereignly superintended the writing of His Word, even in the prophets, in a great many ways. Um, some, prophet, some, some, some parts of Scripture even have come about through careful, systematic research. Think about the historical books of the Bible, or you know how Luke begins his two books. 
He says, I've done patient research into eyewitness accounts that I may tell you, excellent Theophilus, the certainty of all that you've been taught. Uh, Luke is writing, not the result of a great vision or a voice from heaven, as we do find in other places, but as the result of God's providential supervision of this companion of an apostle. The Apostle Paul. His companion is Luke, and as he is going through the circumstances of his life and using his gifts and employing his mind, the very fullness of the human author has gone into it. David wrote songs of praise to God at different points of his life. Paul writes letters to churches, sometimes just in agony, based on what's going on in those churches at the time. There there is so much that's personal, that's human, that's culturally situated in all of this. And yet we are reminded in every case that what is produced is the Word of God to you. It's very interesting. I, I think that we who have yeah, been taught the sovereignty of God, we're probably much more comfortable with this than the average biblical studies person, right? That, that is to say, we're comfortable with this thinking that, uh, yes, humans are... Um, uh, free and responsible agents making real choices and all that. And nevertheless, uh, God sovereignly superintends all things. As it's written, He works all things together for the counsel of His will. Um, so the Bible is the Word of God, but it didn't drop from heaven like a parachute. We have the sovereignty of God and we have the the things that are going on in the world, the, the, the choices of men. And, and we have learned constantly that we must hold these things together and not explain away either side, that no, we are not robots. We make real responsible decisions. And yes, God has the whole world in His hands. In Him we live and move and have our being. Nothing happens outside of His will. And that somehow, in a way that's never explained, He can... He can take a whole situation and have a man write a letter or a prophet make a declaration in light of everything going on in the world to be the Word of God for us. And so we hold these things together. It's 100% man, and it's, yet it's 100% God that has the primacy, and we, this is what we are to rest in. As I've explained to you many times, this is not just the Bible. This is prayer, right? As we cry, Abba, Father, or the Spirit within us cries, Abba, Father. And yet it's one prayer. It's in our evangelism that as many as are appointed to eternal life believed, and yet four verses later, uh, they spoke so effectively that a great number believed. It's in your growth and holiness that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's, and I could go on, and I, I have. And you know I can go on. Because these are the two sides of things that we must always hold together. It's a mystery how they work, but it's certainly 100% man, and it's certainly 100% God that has the primacy somehow, and that's what we get in the Scriptures. Now, skeptics of the Bible sometimes object that the human element 
The human element makes direct revelation from God impossible. Uh, I mean, it's very obvious just from the reading and the style and the vocabulary and the turn of expression that what is actually written depends very much on human authors. Even, even more clear in the original, I, I tell you, there is, there is a great variety of, of vocabulary and expression in the Bible. And so the critics say, you can't, you can't get the pure word. It's always filtered through the human element. And they like to use this uh, illustration that works nice in a church when they're talking. doesn't work very nicely for me, of stained glass. You can imagine, stained glass. You see, look, you know, you can't... Oh, I guess there's a little stain in the top there, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. You, you know, you look through that, you can't see the pure light because it's always being filtered. Oh, that's a good argument, some people will say. B.B. Uh, Warfield had the greatest reply to that I've ever read. He said, you know, the Bible is just like a grand cathedral with many colored stained glass windows. But what people always forget in this analogy is that a cathedral has a builder and that a stained glass portrait has a designer. He writes, and what if the colors of the stained glass window have all been designed by the architect for the express purpose of giving to the light that floods the cathedral precisely the toning quality it receives from them. He says, what if this personality has itself been formed by God into precisely the personality it is for the express purpose of commuting to the world um, uh, through it, the coloring it gives, end quote. All right. That what we have is not just uh, some, some man in a trance uh, giving some kind of automatic writing or something like, oh no. We have a very big picture of God raising up and forming everything about these men, their character, personality, their experience, their life, that he not only raises up David to write some songs, he raised up a poet and shepherd king after his own heart and put him in extreme circumstances and delivered him in order that he might write out of his experience in life the hymn book for the universal church. He knew Jeremiah right from the womb and set him apart. And he, he had things planned out right from the beginning. So to go back to this analogy, when you see a great stained glass window, you don't look at it and say, boy, you can't really see the true glory here. It's exactly the opposite. You say that the designer of this thing has made something astonishing. The real glory that the builder intended is on display. Every shade and every hue was chosen by the great author thereof to make one beautiful portrait of God's salvation of the world being reclaimed by His Son. So, analogies aside, Peter just says it directly. I want you to know this. Men spoke from God. There's the human... There's the divine, we hold it together, we rest. We can't explain everything, but we can certainly love what God has put together as we stand at the foot of that 
beautiful stained glass window of the scriptures and say, wow, look how it all comes together to give glory to God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, fourth, uh, third and finally, he does give this one word of explanation here to what is otherwise a mystery. Uh, they were uh, moved, I have, some of you have carried or carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried by the Holy Spirit. This is verse 21 again, if you're wanting to see this prophecy, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, I have, by the Holy Spirit. Um, moved? Like, oh man, I'm moved. Um, well, as I explained last time, uh, the word has the sense of to bear or to carry along. Remember, it's the same word as Christopher, that Pharaoh word, the bearer of Christ. If that helps you think of Chris as he has the, has the, the, the Lord, as it were, in his heart. He is the bearer of Christ, or a fairy, same thing, bears the cars across there. That's, those are just English cognates, I hope might help you uh, remember. It's not just that people are affected, but they're actually carried along. Uh, interestingly, that same word is used of Paul's ship in Acts 27, when that great storm came up, and they could no longer steer it into the wind, and they had to cut down the sails to keep them from being ripped to shreds. And they just let the wind drive it along. And my, my translation reads, we let her drive. That word drive, same word. They, they couldn't steer the boat anymore. They just had to let it go wherever the wind wanted to take it. They could not control their own destiny. So, that, again, that's, I don't want to read that back into the passage, but it's a nice analogy for what happened to these men. They, they were not uh, uh, able to direct their course anymore in that sense, but are carried along by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit wherever he wanted to go. You know, there's a tremendous interest these days in hearing God's word. God, sorry, God's voice. Oh, I wish it was God's word. Um, everyone wants to hear from God. And there's a, there's a fairly large industry right now of people publishing books or uh, posting posting articles to, to help us hear God's voice. And quick internet search turned up millions of things like this. Listening for God's voice. Hearing God's voice 101. How to hear from God directly. Three ways to help you hear from God more clearly. Four ways to know if you're hearing God's voice. Six things you can do to hear the voice of God. Seven things, seven keys to hearing God's voice. Well, uh, uh, you, you, you go peruse the various articles, and you'll, you'll quickly understand, whether it's three, four, five, six, seven points, that they're all actually saying the same thing. They're, encourage, they're all encouraging you to listen for the voice of God in the echo chamber of your mind. Apparently, I'm supposed to make God's word real in my life by experiencing some sort, depending on the list, of identifiable nudge deep within. This is a dangerous state of affairs. One man wrote, this concerns me deeply. 
while promising a great experience hearing God's voice, the kind of spirituality espoused in these articles is actually quite harmful. Despite all the talk of God, it leaves people alone with themselves by encouraging them to make their relationship with God contingent on nebulous feelings. I mean, if you could actually hear God's voice, that'd be, that'd be something. I mean, Peter writes about that experience. is unforgettable. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, something very unclear, unidentifiable, but somehow this is going to be the voice of God to direct us. And... Um, you know, you read these things and you're going to have one or two reactions, right? Uh, some people are going to be very affirmed and say, oh, I knew it. I knew that God was directing me in all these things, in all these ways, in all my decisions uh, by, in this way and, in fact, affirming just what the person wanted the whole time. Other people, like me, Maybe read these things and say, well, I guess the Lord doesn't love me very much. I guess I'm not very spiritual because I don't get that voice. It's a dangerous state of affairs. The Bible itself, you notice, as God's revelation does not direct you to look for the nudge. It does not make your relationship with your God contingent on nebulous feelings. In fact, it says the Holy Spirit has done a massive work over thousands of years with 40-odd people in the most uh, thrilling ways of giving you His Word At all times. Have you not read what Jesus says? What was written for you? You want to hear the voice of God? He wants you to hear the voice of God. Read the Bible. This is what Peter is is urging this church. To give heed, he says, to the word. That Isaiah writes goes forth from his mouth that bridges the expanse of heaven and earth. The infinite and the finite, the creature and the creator. It is as powerful as the rain and the snow that come down from heaven that don't return there, but watering the earth and bring forth life and that sprouts and give seed to the sower and bread to the hearer. Is not my word a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock? This power that God says is for you must not to be neglected. You should expect God to speak to you, but not through a nudge. Powerfully and really and objectively through His Word. And this is to be the final testament of Peter as he leaves the church uh, to go to the Lord. He says, "I, I want to leave you with this thought Give heed to the Scriptures. 
That word, as the Geneva Bible said in its sold preface, that is the light to our paths, the key to the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the mirror in which we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment for our souls. All these and many more testimonies the Bible gives of itself. This is to be where our confidence must rest, is that men spoke from God, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right. In conclusion, I would like to leave you with some application as Peter is writing about this, um, not just to give you some theory of inspiration, right? I mean, the theologians, they all, they, you know, they write about this theory and that theory and that theory. It's all, it's all very theoretical. And some of it's very esoteric, these various theories of inspiration. As far as the apostles are concerned, the inspiration of the scripture is one of the most practical doctrines there is. Because when you understand it, you give heed to it. Uh, preach the word, he says, in season, out of season, since it's given by inspiration of God. Okay, that's the connection. J.C. Ryle, therefore, in a booklet called God's Book, the Bible. A very nice read for you this afternoon if you're looking for something. Yeah, he, he wrote some reasons why we therefore should give heed to it. And I'll conclude with this. First, there's no book like the Bible. When you read it, you're not reading the self-taught compositions of poor, imperfect men like yourself, but the words of the eternal God. Second, the Bible is sufficient for our salvation that we live in days when the words of Daniel are fulfilled before our eyes. Daniel 12 writes that many run to and fro and knowledge is increased. He, he, uh, schools, he says, are multiplying on every side. But you know, chemistry never silenced a guilty conscience. Mathematics never healed a broken heart. <laughs> Certainly not mine. Nor does he write, earthly or natural theology will, ever, will never give peace in the prospect of meeting a holy God. It's a time when knowledge increases. But all these things are of the earth, and the earthly can never raise a man above the earth's level. After all, a knowledge of the Bible, he writes, is the one knowledge that is needful and eternally useful. A man can get to heaven without money, learning, health, or friends. But without the Bible, he will never get there at all. Number three. No book contains such important matters. The coming into the world of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the readiness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to receive, pardon, and save to the uttermost. How unspeakably grand and cheering are these truths. We should know nothing of them without the Bible. How blessed are the hopes that the Bible holds out. How striking is the light it throws on the character of man. How deep is the wisdom. Surely no tongue can fully tell of the value of the treasures this volume contains. Okay? There's no book like it. It's sufficient for our salvation. It contains such important matters. Fourth, no book has ever produced such wonderful effects on mankind. These teachings have turned the world upside down. Even in the days of the apostles, the Lord sent forth what, a few Jews from a remote corner of the earth to do a work which, according to man's judgment, must have seemed impossible. 
He sent them forth at a time that the whole world was full of superstition, cruelty, lust, and sin. He sent them forth to proclaim that all the established religions of the earth were false and useless and must be forsaken. Never was there an enterprise to all appearances less likely to succeed. And in a few generations, nevertheless, they changed the face of society. And what are the victories of Alexander and Caesar, Napoleon and Wellington compared with this? No book has ever produced such wonderful effects. Fifth, no book can ever do so much for those who read it rightly, for it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It has taught worldly people to seek first the kingdom of God. It's taught lovers of pleasure to become lovers of God. Is someone drowsy in soul? Everyone looks up. No, no. Is someone drowsy in soul? It can awaken him. Is he mourning? It can comfort him. Is he erring? It can restore him. Is he weak? It can make him strong. It has done that for thousands already, and it is doing it for thousands every day. Sixth, the Bible is the only standard by which all doctrines are tested. A true minister will say, search the scriptures. And if I do not teach you what is scriptural, don't believe me. What the apostle said literally. A, a false minister will say, hear me. A true minister will say, hear the word of the Lord, to the law and to the testimony. What saith the scripture? Seven, the Bible is the only book by which all true servants of God have ever lived by. Every living thing that God made requires food. So when the Holy Spirit raises a man from sin and death and makes him a new creature in Christ, the only food that can sustain him is the word of God. Job says, I have esteemed his words more than my necessary food. And Peter, of course, writes of the milk of the word. By it, we're able to grow. Jesus, quoting Moses, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's the only thing that can sustain the life of a child of God. And eighth, finally, if I told you there was eight, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have paid attention. But here you go. Number eight. The Bible, he concludes, is the only book that could comfort you in the last hours of your life. Money can buy the best medical advice, but money cannot buy peace of conscience, heart, and soul. But you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you will find the religion of the Bible enables a man not merely to say, I feel hope in Christ, but I know whom I have believed. That is a great book. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, even as we let this word of Christ dwell in us richly, we reject a religion of feeling that is a very uncertain thing and pray that we might be affected only by the greatness of your glory revealed in the word, by the power of your spirit, and that all of our thoughts and feelings and lives should be held captive to that word that you have revealed for our instruction. We pray that you would deliver us in our generation from a very cloudy and foggy time when many feeling one way or another have even made a, a great wreck and uh, a shipwreck of their faith, as the apostles put it. We desire that uh, we might be fully trusting in your holy word. Give us your light 
of life, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.